Yes, Lord, we do. We do long for your presence. Lord, help us to perceive your presence here among us. God, we thank you for that beautiful song. We thank you for the chance to know that you are near, to know that you're close to us, that you are the one who dwells among us, Lord, by your Spirit. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. Holy Spirit, would you give me the words tonight as we go through these short four verses? Would you give me a tongue that reflects you, God, and that speaks your word so that we can be enlivened and enriched by your word, Lord. Your word is powerful, it is strong, and it accomplishes what it sets out to do. And so we thank you, and thank you that it does that. And God, tonight, as we focus in on Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, would your spirit speak the words of life? Let us be those, like the the letter says, let us be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, we pray all these things in your precious name. God, thank you for everyone here, everyone represented here, and everyone who's normally a part of this community that's gone right now. Lord, would you bless each one of them? Would your Spirit touch them? That's the beauty of the community, Lord, is that even when we're apart, you still are with us because you are the very one who unifies our souls, unifies who we are as a body. As we will celebrate tonight, by remembering communion, it is you, God, that we are all a part of in one body. For those who believe we are one body, even when separate. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron, Tyler. Appreciate it, guys. Well, now we're going to continue on. Like I said, this is a, a short four verses tonight. Um, so who knows? I mean, you might be getting only a 40-minute sermon. We'll see. With only four verses, I mean, that's only like 10 minutes of verse. We'll be getting out here real early. Um. This is a good, uh, it's interesting because this is the shortest letter, right? This is, like I said, it's just a few short verses. It's by far the shortest letter. And it's interesting because they're not chastised for anything. They're not told that they could do better in some way. It's just a preparatory letter. It's, it's telling them what's about to transpire. And of course, what's coming is not bright. <laughs> it is dark. And so the church at Smyrna that we're going to read tonight... Uh, this letter to them is tragic, but there is, as always, uh, comfort that lines the letter, even in four short verses. And we'll see that tonight. But as always, uh, each week I've told you I want to start uh, each week by reading a martyr story. And I think it's particularly uh, apropos for the church at Smyrna. Uh, this week, like I told you, it's Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And the sermon title this week is Prepare for Suffering. Because that's the essence of the message that Jesus has for this church. Is be prepared, be prepared to suffer. Now that's a hard message, for sure. And one that we really don't have a lot of experience as Americans uh, in dealing with this message. But to the church throughout the ages, to the church all across the world even today, this message is timely. Prepare for suffering. So I want us to get into that framework, as always, by reading a martyr story. This is again from John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, this week... I thought I would read um, one of the countless women of faith. I realized the last few weeks I've been reading all, uh, I think all, since the beginning, it's all been men I've read about, and I haven't read about a, a woman. And this is about a, a woman of faith and her story of martyrdom. Her name was Perpetua. So I'll read this to you. This is, <clears throat> excuse me, in the second century, so we're talking late 100s, early 200s. Perpetua, who was a young married woman who was still nursing a child, and Felicitas, who was then pregnant, 
and Revocatus of Carthage, a slave who was being taught the principles of Christianity. Other prisoners who suffered at the same time were Saturninus, Secundulus, and Sater. These latter three were made to run between two rows of men who severely lashed them as they passed. Now, after an appearance before the proconsul Minutius, in which she was offered freedom if she sacrificed to the idols, Perpetua had her still nursing baby taken from her and was thrown into prison. Describing her faith and life in prison, she told her father, the dungeon is to me a palace. Later, she and the other prisoners appeared before Hilarionis, the judge. He also offered to set her free if she would simply sacrifice. That's all it would take. She's a young married woman. She's nursing a child. Her baby's at home with her dad. All she has to do is sacrifice. Freedom is hers. Her father was there with her baby and begged her to do so. Begged her. Come back home. Be with your child. Just make the sacrifice and come home. She replied, I will not sacrifice. Are you a Christian? Asked Hilarionis. I am a Christian, Perpetua replied. All of the Christians with her stood fast for Christ. And they were ordered to be killed by wild beasts for the enjoyment of the crowd on the next pagan holiday. The men were to be torn by lions and leopards, and the women set upon by bulls. On the day of their execution, Perpetua and Felicitas were first stripped naked and hung in nets, but they were removed and clothed when the crowd objected. Upon returning to the arena, Perpetua was tossed about by a, bat, by a mad bull and was stunned but not seriously hurt. Felicitas, however, was badly gored. Perpetua hurried to her side and held her while they waited for the bull to charge them again. But the bull refused to do so, and they were dragged from the arena, much to the crowd's disappointment. After a short time, they were brought back to be killed by gladiators. Felicitas was killed quickly, but the young, inexperienced gladiator assigned to kill Perpetua trembled violently and could only stab her weakly several times. Seeing how he trembled, Perpetua held his sword blade and guided it to a vital area in her body. The fate of the men were similar. Sator and Revocatus were killed by the wild beasts. Saturninus was beheaded, and Secundulus died of his wounds in prison. Now, faithful until death to the point that she's helping the man who's killing her. Okay. It's in that mindset we now approach the letters to the church of Asia Minor. Revelation 2. So here we are, Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life says this. Now, who's speaking? Well, each one of these letters we said is Jesus speaking to the angel of the church, right? So this is Jesus speaking, and he's referring to what? As I told you before, each heading or each intro to each letter is coming out of the vision of chapter one, right? Or at least chapter one generally. There's interestingly one, one or two exceptions to that, but this is from the vision. Now, unlike the vision in Ephesus, or excuse me, the, the letter to Ephesus, it came directly from what they saw, which is John saw one who walked among the lampstands. And so the church at Ephesus, uh, in that intro, it says, the one who walks among the golden lampstands and holds the seven stars says this. This part says the one who was dead the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Now, interestingly, that is not part of what John sees in the vision. It's actually what Jesus says in the vision about himself. Okay, you go back to chapter one, 
It says this, when I saw him, it's just given this great description of him. White like wool is his hair. He's like the ancient of days. He has feet like burnished bronze and eyes like flames. And John sees this, and what is his response to the glory he sees of the Son of Man? Well, here it is, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, the one who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Okay? That is the Jesus who is speaking to the church at Smyrna. Now, why is that particularly appropriate? We're gonna get to that in the next few verses. Let me go back here. This one who is speaking to them is the one who was dead and is alive again. Now that is particularly pertinent to what Jesus is going to say. And like I've told you, each one of the headings and the conclusions, what you will receive if you overcome, relate directly to the core of the message of the letter. So whatever the message is to this church at Smyrna, it has to do with death and life. It has to do with the one who was dead and came to life. Because that is who specifically Jesus is introducing himself as, as it relates to this church. Out of all the different images he could have pulled from that letter, this is the part he pulled to speak about who he is and how he relates to this church. And it's the one who was dead and is now alive. Just like he spoke to Ephesus as the one who walks among the lampstands and holds the seven stars. Now he's the one who was dead, the one who was alive. Okay, Jesus says this. The one who was dead and is now alive says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are instead a synagogue of Satan. Okay, Jesus is saying right at the outset, I know what you have suffered. I know the tribulation which you are under. And I know that part of that is how impoverished you are. Now again, this is a world set, a mindset in which, a worldview and a mindset in which we can't really place ourselves. We don't understand the poverty of the first century. <laughs> That's just foreign to us as Americans in the 21st century. It, the poverty of the first century and, and this small city uh, is just unknown to us. But whatever the case, there are, they are deeply impoverished, and that's part of what he calls their tribulation. They're under suffering, they're impoverished, and they're being blasphemed. Specifically, it says, by the Jews. Let me go back to the poverty for a second. Jesus makes an aside in which he says, but you are rich. Again, this is an ironic thing. I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich. What's he saying? He's saying they're poor materially. They're poor in terms of their actual circumstance in a physical, earthly sense. But spiritually, they have a wealth of riches. Remember what we talked about. This is the dual worldview we said we're seeing as we read Revelation, right? The physical doesn't necessarily mirror the, the spiritual or the, the heavenly. The earthly doesn't necessarily mirror the heavenly reality. And in fact, we're supposed to look beyond the earthly and see the heavenly. And Jesus is saying that about the condition of the church at Smyrna. Listen, if you were just to look at the worldly situation, you have nothing. You're impoverished. What do you have to your name? What do you have to your credit? What could uphold you? But if we strip that away and can look behind the veil, look through a supernatural lens, look as, as the one who was dead and is alive forevermore. If we could look like he looks you'd see actually the church at Smyrna rich beyond belief. 
with spiritual wealth. Because why? Because they're faithful. Now it's interesting because like I told you, this is one of the shortest letters of all the, the seven letters. Not one of, it is the shortest. Of the seven letters, it's the shortest. But what's missing from this letter to Smyrna? Why is it only four verses? Because they're not rebuked for anything. They have nothing that needs to change in terms of what they're doing. Jesus doesn't have to come in and say, you've walked away from your first love, like he did to Ephesus. He doesn't have to say, you've supported this Balaam group, like he does to Pergamum. He doesn't say, you've, you've, with, you've totally accepted Jezebel in your midst, like he does to Thyatira. No, this church is pure and holy. What do they need to hear? What does this holy, pure church need to hear? It's that hard times are coming. See, the message from Jesus is not, you need to be rebuked, repent, and change. It is, you need to be ready for what is about to happen. Be prepared. And if Jesus can see that what is coming is suffering, what is the comfort that he can bring them? If this is a holy, pure, righteous church, and Jesus, the Lord, the one who was dead and is alive forevermore, wants to comfort them, what can he offer? I'm going to have you sit with that question. I'm not going to answer it yet. But what can he offer to the church that is suffering, that is it's doing everything right, and yet pain and suffering are what they have to look forward to. What's the message to them? Okay. They looks like they're in material poverty, but they're rich spiritually, and there is blasphemy. Not only are they suffering under tribulation, they are in trial. Not only are they impoverished, but there are those outside of the community who are blaspheming them. They are speaking ill of them. They're talking trash about them. And who's doing it? It's the Jews, or at least those who think they're Jews. But they are not, because what are they actually? They're a synagogue of Satan. Okay. This is interesting. Of course, if you're a covenantalist and you read this passage, they're going to say, look, see what I said? The Jews that think they're Jews and they are not. Why? Well, because the true Jew now, the true Israel, is the church. They would say, look at this. That says it plainly. They think they're the Jews, but they're not. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. Who's the true Jew? The one who believes in Christ, which would be the church. It makes perfect sense in their system. I don't think that's what's being said. I don't think it's, I don't think it's just you know, lump sum saying that all Jews are now the synagogue of Satan. I don't think that's the point. I think it has a specific point to make, and it is explaining the blasphemy under which they, they find themselves, okay? Satan is an interesting word. It's got a long history. Um, it's actually not originally a name, okay? It's a word. It comes from the Old Testament, and the first time you see it is actually in the book of Numbers, does anyone know who the first person to be called Satan is? A Satan? It's an angel. It is actually, excuse me, it is the angel of the Lord. He's called a Satan in Numbers 22. In Numbers 22, interestingly enough, this story is going to come up again next week when we look at Pergamum because it's the story of Balaam riding his donkey. Now, this is a great fanciful children's story that everyone loves. Oh, the donkey talks, and that's all we think of it. It's not the point of the story, of course, and it's totally disconnected from the context. But what it's saying here, and what it has to do with what we're talking about, is the angel of the Lord stood before him, right? He's God's angry because Balaam was going along the way, and the angel of the Lord stood before him as a Satan. 
He stood before him as a Satan, an adversary. Now, there's two interesting ways of translating Satan. At its most basic, it's adversary. It's an enemy, right? So here he's called a Satan, the angel of the Lord, because he, why? He's an adversary against Balaam. He stands in the way as an adversary against this false prophet or this prophet of Moab, however you want to think of that. So he's standing against him as an adversary. And of course, this is an early interpretation. The word is used in this way uh, fairly frequently of the times it's used, but it's also used of human adversaries, right? It's used in the Psalms to talk about, you know, my adversaries who stand against me. That same word is used, Satan, right? But of course, the most famous example, and it's relatively rare that it's used in the Old Testament of this being that we've come to know as Satan. The being, the spiritual being that we've come to know as Satan. And, uh, you know, we use that almost like a proper name, don't we? It's like, it's like his personal name. Like, though, yeah, it's Satan. You know, that's how we use that word. But it has a meaning. And the place that it's most consistently used and first found to have the meaning that we're going to talk about that I think explains what's going on here is, of course, the, the place that it shows up most frequently in Scripture, which is Job. Job 1 and 2. Now, who is, is in this scene, in this setting we're going to see in Job 1? Well, there's Job, who's on earth, and what he's the, like the greatest dude who's ever lived, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the story. Righteous, blameless, walks with God, right? When Ezekiel talks about it, when the Lord speaks to Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel, and right, what's, what's going on in Ezekiel? Judgment is coming. Judgment, it's already happened in part from Babylon, but this is a judgment Israel deserves. And what does he say to Ezekiel? What does the Lord say? You know what? I wouldn't stop this judgment even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were before me. Three people who are all said to be righteous, blameless, walk with God. Best people in the scriptures, according to God, in terms of their the way they live. They are righteous men. I should say of the Old Testament. Obviously, Jesus is the greatest person in the scriptures. Um, But you look at these three men, they're great men. And Job is a great man, one of the best who ever lived. And he's on earth. And what's going on behind the scenes? It's kind of like apocalyptic literature even there because we see Job on earth and everything looks great and he's righteous and he's rich and everything's going good. What's going on behind the scenes? What's going on in the supernatural realm? God and Satan are talking. Which, by the way, I think is very disturbing. (laughs) There's no answers for that in Scripture, why God and Satan are just talking. The Lord doesn't just slay him right there. But they're talking. They're having a chat about Job. And Satan says, I've come from roaming about the earth. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? How, look how righteous he is. Look what a good man he is. And Satan says, well, is it for nothing that he's that way? You've put a hedge around him. You've protected him. Of course he's righteous. Take away his things and we'll see how righteous he is. Okay. Now, in the context of Satan standing before Job, Excuse me. Satan standing before the Lord and speaking to him, Satan has another meaning. And that meaning is the accuser. He is the one who accuses. And the word is also frequently used in that way in the in the Old Testament. Okay? The OT uses it that way to talk about accusation. So haha Satan, the Satan, in Job is the one accusing Job. And then, of course, by by the time you get to Zechariah, Zechariah has this vision in Zechariah 3. And you get here in Zechariah 3, verse 1, it says this. This is Zechariah seeing a vision from the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, Satan, standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. Satan was standing at his right hand, Sataning him, is the Hebrew there. Satan was Sataning. Okay? 
So this is what the word means. It means to accuse. So when we take that understanding, which is how Satan is understood as you go through the New Testament. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, the Greek has a word for Satan, for Satan, for Satan. And it's diabolos, where we get diablo, right, in, in Latin languages, or what came into English as the devil. We know what diabolos means in Greek? It means to slander. It's directly being translated from the Hebrew Satan. That's how it came into the Greek. And it's used of people also when someone slanders someone. That meaning is, is it's simpatico. It's they're, they're equivalent in meaning, diabolos and Satan in different languages. So you have this reality of this one who accuses. So what's the point of calling the Jews a synagogue of Satan? Let me go back. Come on here. There we go. They're a synagogue of Satan. I think it's explaining what the Jews are doing to the church at Smyrna. What are they doing? They're accusing them. They're accusing them. Of what? Well, probably various things. But the most significant, of course, is probably not sacrificing to the idols not worshiping the emperor. I told you this either last week or two weeks ago, but there was one religion in which you were protected from having to do sacrifices to the emperor as worship. That one religion, Judaism. Every other citizen of the Roman Empire had to do sacrifices to the emperor. It was part of civic life. It was part of normal living. That is just a normal thing you did. You're going to go have a celebration in the town square. You sacrifice to the emperor and to idols and to pagan gods. And the one group of people who had protection from having to do that, legal protection under Roman law, was the, was the Jews. Now, Christianity, as a sect within Judaism originally, or at least it looked that way, maintained that protection. But as the animosity and hostility grew between the two groups, more and more, the Jews made a point to say, those Christians are not Jews, and they should not be under the legal protection that Judaism has. So, when it talks about them being a synagogue of Satan, I think what it's referring to is the fact that the Jews were now openly accusing the Christians of not doing their due diligence as citizens of Rome and sacrificing. Because, of course, the true Christian could not abide sacrificing to a false god or sacrificing to the emperor who is not a god and yet was treated like one by society. And so they were accused. They were dragged out. And, and, and you know, maybe they tried to keep a low profile, but when the, Jude, if the Judaizers, if, if any people within the community or the Jews outside the community, if they found out about it, it was very easy for them to say, look, this is a Christian. They're not a Jew. Why aren't they sacrificing? Actually, let's bring out a sacrifice right now and see what they do. Maybe we should test their loyalty to the empire. And of course, what would happen to a true Christian? They wouldn't do it. And inevitably, what was the result of that? Death. This is not a slap on the wrist offense. This is death. So they are the accusing synagogue, a congregation of those who accuse. So I know that you are suffering in trial. I know you're impoverished, and I know that you are accused by those around you. A bleak situation. Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. 
Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now again, there is a lot packed in. We're three verses deep. We're 75% of the way there, kind of. There's a lot packed into this verse because it's a clear allusion to something that almost no one ever talks about when you're reading this letter. And the clear allusion, especially with how many times we've seen Daniel get quoted already, which is numerous, we're two chapters deep, and Daniel has been quoted again and again and again. And this again is a quote from Daniel. Now, it's not a a direct quote, but it's clearly an allusion to Daniel. Daniel 1, okay? Who is tested? And what's the 10 days have to do with anything? Well, actually, 10 days, it's very, you know, we kind of want to, oh, it's very cryptic. No, it's actually specific reference. There's a specific reference to 10 days in Daniel 1. Here it is. I'm going to read uh, probably the first, I think it's the first 15 verses to you. Because the story is supposed to enlighten you about what Smyrna's situation is. This is not just pick an illusion out of a hat. Oh, John was like, oh, this one, I guess this sounds kind of cool. He didn't do that. He was alluding to something specifically to explain the situation here. And it's really clear. Okay, Daniel, here's the beginning of it. We'll start at verse 1, Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, by the way, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, from Babylon's perspective, we conquered them. We beat them. We beat Israel. Our gods are greater than their gods. We won. Now, the Jews never interpreted it that way because they knew that their God had told them they were going to lose, that they would be conquered. Why? As punishment for their idolatry. They were an unfaithful, unrighteous, stubborn, stiff-necked people, and God said, I've had it, and now you will be disciplined. Daniel is the story post that discipline. The discipline has taken place. Jerusalem has been besieged. It's been struck down. And worst of all, the temple's been ransacked. All of Israel, all of Judah, gone. And what's worse than anything? We were here, we studied Genesis together, all of you. We went through the whole book of Genesis. What is the key dynamic of Genesis? We're in the land. What's the worst punishment that could, be ha- that could possibly happen to Israel? They have to leave Israel. They're defined by their land. And sure enough, God said, if you disobey, I will send you into exile. Daniel is post that exile. So if you know what's going on in this story, I'll keep reading. But what's going on is Daniel is a well-educated, smart, not royal, but noble youth. He's of the nobility of Israel. And so he's taken in to the court of the king of Babylon, which is Nebuchadnezzar at this time. And you see Daniel's life as he lives through successive empires until he becomes an old man. That's the story of Daniel. A great man. Just like I told you. Remember Job? He said, righteous, blameless walks with God. Who were the three people God said to Ezekiel? Noah, Job, and Daniel. Daniel is a great man. One of the best. And he lives as this servant to kings, to emperors. He is through the changing of these seasons of different empires throughout world history. And Daniel's heavily involved. So, they've been conquered. The the Israelites were conquered and Babylon won and Nebuchadnezzar has taken things into his 
treasury for his gods, and he's taken people, right? The king of Judah. So the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered Ashpenaz to teach them both the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another name for Babylonians. There are a lot of names. Important city. Okay, important empire. So, they're being taught the literature of Babylon and the language of Babylon. Then, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Nigo, but Nibo. Nebo is the name of the god. What's going on with their new names? What's the difference between their old names and their new names? Their old names celebrate who? The God of Israel. What do their new names celebrate? The gods of Babylon. Their new names are given to them to honor the Babylonian gods. Bel, Nebo, I mean, these are not just random things. Their names have the names of the Babylonian gods in them. Why is Nebuchadnezzar doing this? What's the point? He's attaching them to Babylon. He's making them lose their identity as Israelites. So that they could be what? Babylonian. He's already teaching them the literature and language. He is giving them new names that reflect Babylonian gods. What's the intention? To make them part of Babylon. What's the risk for Daniel? What's the risk for Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael? What's the risk? That they lose their identity. That they forget their God. That they become Babylonian. So Daniel, verse 8. Daniel does the only thing he has left available. What can he tell them? Don't call me Belteshazzar. Call me Daniel. They'll kill him. Or they'll just call him Belteshazzar. He has no say in the matter. He can't say, stop teaching me literature and language. Again, they'll kill him. He has no say. He has no power. He has one thing that he can put under his power. And he thinks about it. He's like, what can I do? Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, at one level, does this have to do with the kosher laws? Probably to some extent, right? They don't want to be eating pork. They're Israelite. That could be part of it. But more importantly, it's a marker that they're different. Daniel is taking something under his control to say we are different than Babylon. We are still Israelites. We are still the people of God. Our God, not Babylon's gods. This has nothing to do with the special diet. I've heard that many times. Oh, well, we have the Daniel diet. You just eat veggies and you're magically better. That's not the point. And in fact, that strips the story of its power. Because if it's just a recipe for a diet, anyone can do it. 
Any of the Babylonians can be like, well, I'm just going to eat vegetables and I will become good looking. That's not the point. The point is they need to distinguish themselves. If anyone can do it of any age, because it's just a special diet, what's the miraculous power of it? No, the power of it is that God honors their difference. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. He says, no, please don't do this. Because if you do, as isn't a secret to anyone, this isn't a magical diet that'll fix you. You'll look terrible. You'll look like you're being maltreated because you're not eating the choice food. See, the commander knows that this diet is not some special cure-all, but it's actually a terrible diet. That doesn't mean it's unhealthy, but it means you're not getting everything you need. And you're going to look haggard. And, and if that happens, I'm done. It's going to cost me, your guys are going to cost me my life. What's Daniel's response? Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. They're saying, hey, just test us. What's the 10 days? Obviously, the 10 days of revelation is referencing this. It's used, you will be tested. You'll be in tribulation for 10 days. Clear reference to this. Same word in the Septuagint, parazo, testing. Same word that shows up in Revelation 2. Testing 10 days. Clear reference to Daniel 1. What's the point of 10 days in Daniel, though? The point of the 10 days is that it's a short time. They're saying, yeah, they're not saying, hey, let's try this out for a year and see how we look. Because the, the overseer knows that he's dead then. If they look that bad after a year, they're done. His life is forfeit. Daniel's trying to say, listen, just do it for a short time. And let's see. Let's see the results. If you just do it for this short period, 10 days, that's all. And we'll see if there's a difference. So they have favor and compassion because of God. So the overseer listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. They looked better. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. The point of this, like I said, is not to just take this completely out of context and be like, whoa, what a great diet. Let's just eat vegetables. The point is God was miraculously honoring what Daniel did to, di to differentiate himself from Babylon. This has nothing to do with how healthy vegetables are for you. I'm not speaking to that issue. The point isn't health. The point is theology. God is honoring the difference. Daniel made a point to distinguish himself, to differentiate himself from those who are around him and stay, have one piece he could say, I'm still an Israelite. I'm still Daniel. I'm not Belteshazzar. And God honored that. So what's that have to do with what we were reading in Revelation 1? 
think it's telling us the exact situation that the church at Smyrna is in. Listen, Smyrna, you're in the Roman Empire. Every force is telling you, just be like the world. Just like Daniel. Everything was telling you, just be like the world. Just be like Babylon. What does it matter? Just eat the choice food. Same situation here. Listen, what does it matter? Just sacrifice, right? Perpetua. Just sacrifice. What does it matter? And then go on with your life. Daniel 1 is alluded to specifically so that they can have an example, a role model. Don't be like Babylon. Don't live like the Roman Empire. Yeah, I know you've been conquered. I know you're, you're enslaved under this empire. You have no power to fight back against them. But listen, don't worry about the tribulation that's coming because the test is only gonna be for 10 days. It's just this much. And if you can be faithful, it'll last for an eternity. If you give in to Rome, if you give in to Babylon, you'll be just like them. And that will be your reward. You'll be just like them, you'll think just like them, and you're gonna find the same judgment that they get. But if you can be different, if you cannot compromise, if you cannot give up your faithfulness, Smyrna, if you can be faithful until death, I will give you the crown of life. Trust me, tribulation's coming. I'm not denying that. But it's for a short time, just 10 days. If you can make it through this life, everything is yours. Okay. Last verse, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So now we're back to the beginning. Jesus said, I am the first and the last the one who was dead, and I am alive forevermore. And now he says, what's the promise? If you can overcome, you will not be hurt by the second death. He's saying two things. One, he's reinforcing the message. Prepare for suffering, because the first death is going to get you. It's going to. Be faithful until death. It's coming. The first death is not the end. Why? Because this isn't just an allusion to Daniel, but it's a model of life after Jesus. What hope does the church at Smyrna have when they are told openly that death is coming for you? They have a model in their Messiah as the one who death could not hold because he was dead and is now alive forevermore. So to him who overcomes, you're not gonna be hurt by the second death, the eternal death, the punishment that comes at the end of days, the final judgment in which those who are not faithful, those who do not believe, in which they will find an eternal second death. A death that has no ending and a death that is equivalent to being separate from God forever. But that second death holds no power over the church at Smyrna they can be faithful until death, until the first death. 
because their Jesus was also faithful until death. And sure enough, it could not hold him and he's now alive forevermore. It's interesting, I saw this uh, going back to the beginning of this letter, the first and the last. I was looking at that today. And there's only a couple places in the New Testament where that is show, shows up, those lang- that language, first and last, in close succession. And I thought it was interesting. It's in the Gospels. And I, I thought I would show it to you because I think it's interesting because it follows kind of the same pattern as this. The first and the last, the one who was dead and is now alive forevermore. Matthew 19, verse 30, says this. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. It's interesting. What happens immediately after this is Jesus gives this parable, and it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the workers in the field who go out. uh, I can't remember if it's a vineyard or field now, which one it is. Um, But they go out and they work, and they're promised a denarius. And of course, the first workers go out in the the morning, (laughs) and they're promised a denarius, and they work all day. And then Jesus brings in, the owner, brings in some more workers at about, it says about noon. And then those workers, they're promised a denarius and they work from noon on. And then the last couple hours, only a few hours left in the day to work and he brings those workers in. And they are also promised a denarius. And it says the last group should be paid first. And so that last group comes up and they get a denarius for their day's wage. And of course, the groups who worked all day, they're like, oh man, if they get a denarius, what are we getting? Because we've been working all day. They've worked for an hour. And Jesus gives them a denarius, the owner. I keep saying Jesus. It says the owner. It's a parable. The owner gives them a denarius. And it says they grumbled at him because they said, we worked all day and we only get a denarius? Why do they get a denarius? They only work for an hour. Jesus and the owner says, didn't we agree on a denarius for a day's wage? I've given you what I promised. What is it your concern if I decide to be generous with my money to those who came at the last hour? And after that parable, Jesus says this, So the last shall be first, and the first last. And immediately after that, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Immediately from the first and last language, Jesus goes to talk about his death and resurrection. That's the exact same pattern as Revelation. The first and the last, he who was dead and is alive forevermore. First shall be last, last shall be first. Now I'm going to tell you about my death and resurrection. And then you know what happens right after this? Right after this, John and James's mother go, hey, Jesus, uh, do you think it's possible you could have one of my two sons sit on your right hand in your kingdom and one sit on your left hand? And Jesus goes, it's not my place. It's my father's to decide. And it says the other 10 apostles, they were indignant at the two. How dare they? How dare they think that they get the position of prestige at the Lord's right and left hands? And then Jesus says this, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus ties this concept of first and last 
into giving his life up right here. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be first, you got to be the slave. If you want to be first, you got to serve and serve in the ultimate capacity to give your life as a ransom for many. I didn't get this from a commentary or anything. I just looking at it myself. So, you know, there's not much backing it, just my own word. But I thought it was interesting that this passage followed that same pattern. You know, the first and the last. You know, a lot of times we just took those words to just like be kind of preeminence, like the beginning and the end. And it uses that language later in Revelation. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. But it's interesting that in this passage with Smyrna and in chapter one, it does the first and the last, he who was dead and is now alive forevermore. I think the first and the last in that setting right next to dead and alive, I think is referring to kind of that greatest and least mentality that it shows right here. I think actually that's the reference. Jesus is the first because he's preeminent. He's the greatest. And why is he so great? Because he was the last. He was the least. He was the lowest. He submitted to death itself, Philippians 2 tells us. Not only was he willing to be a servant and take on that form, but he was willing, so humble, he was willing to submit even to death as a servant, despite who he was as the son of God. He's the first and the last, the one who was dead and is now alive. The last, the one who was dead, and the first, the one who lives forevermore. I don't know if this is necessarily a message for Wellspring in this moment that we just need to say, prepare for suffering. But I do know. I do know that that is a message that has resonated with the church throughout its life. That the church has always needed to hear that something terrible might be coming. But if you can hold on, if you can be faithful until death, there is a promise from the one who died. You might suffer that same death. But if you suffer that same death, you can expect that you will also partake in that same resurrection. And that's the comfort to the church at Smyrna. There's not much comfort to be found in you're going to die. But there is comfort to, to be found in the fact that your Messiah also died. And in the same way he was resurrected, you can look forward that you can look forward to that in the same way. Because no longer, if you persevere, if you're faithful until death, if you can overcome, you will not be hurt by the second death. So like I said, I don't know how applicable this is to us in this moment, but it's always a good reminder as we think about our brothers and sisters around the world, as we think about our brothers and sisters of the past, and even as we look to our brothers and sisters of the future who have yet to come to faith. And I think at the end of this message, and really at the beginning too, and especially as I was studying and reading Fox's Book of Martyrs and, and, and that just in my own study, I was left with this place of great thankfulness. Because it is not assured that this message wouldn't apply to Wellspring. But in God's graciousness, in our situation, in the United States, we can be grateful that this message doesn't apply. And the fact that this message doesn't apply is a grace. 
because it easily could. And to many churches, it does. And I think our response, as it always should be, as we should always remember, but we rarely do, or I shouldn't speak for anyone else, I rarely do. We should be reminded to pray for for those of our brethren around the world who this message does speak to them. Because our brothers and sisters are out dying around the world right now. It may seem far from us, it may seem distant, but right at this moment, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted all around the world. So all we can do is go to God and pray for them. I mean, that's the least we can do. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering, who will face persecution, and who will have to be faithful until death so that they can taste the crown of life, that they can have that placed upon their head, they can taste of that life that is to come. And we can assure them that the scriptures say, Revelation 2, verse 11, that they will not taste, they will not be hurt by the second death. They will not experience it. Okay? That's all I have for you tonight, Mom. Uh, my mom's going to come up and lead us for communion. We're doing communion tonight. And I think it's particular. you can come up, Mom. It's particularly apropos, apropos it's, it's appropriate that we would do this tonight when we're talking about being one with the body. And that's true as a local body. We are one in spirit because of the Holy Spirit. We are one as the body. But even beyond that, and probably particularly with this message tonight, We're one with the body that is suffering around the world. And that's why the scripture can say things like rejoice with those who are rejoicing, weep with those who are weeping, mourn with them, right? Because our body is all around this world, just as Jesus himself did, this body that we are a part of, the body of Christ, is still suffering. And I think it's particularly appropriate, like I said, for us as we take communion to remember the rest of the body who we don't see every week.